This lesson today is from Deuteronomy. Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho, and the Lord showed him the whole land, Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negev, and the plain, that is, the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zoar. The Lord said to him, This is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not cross over there. Then Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab at the Lord's command. He was buried in a valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor, but no one knows his burial place to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His sight was unimpaired and his vigor had not abated. The Israelites wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the period of mourning for Moses was ended. Joshua, son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom because Moses had, Moses had laid his hands on him. And the Israelites obeyed him, doing as the Lord had commanded Moses. Never since has there arisen a prophet in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. He was unequaled for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to perform in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh and all his servants and his entire land, and for all the mighty deeds and all the terrifying displays of power that Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. The word of the Lord. A reading from Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. You yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully mistreated at Philippi. As you know, we had courage in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in spite of great opposition. For our appeal does not spring from deceit or impure motives or trickery. But just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the message of the gospel, even so, we speak not to please mortals, but to please God who tests our hearts. As you know, and as God is our witness, we never came with words of flattery or with a pretext for greed, nor did we seek praise from mortals, whether from you or from others, though we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nurse tenderly caring for her own children. So deeply do we care for you that we are determined to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also ourselves, because you have become very dear to us. The word of the Lord. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to teach him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. 
This is the greatest and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them this question. What do you think of the Messiah? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. And Jesus said to them, how is it then that David by the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David thus calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one was able to give him an answer, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. The Gospel of the Lord. In the infinite love of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Pharisei autem orientes quod silentium imposus et seducias in convenerat in unum interrogavit eum unus eis legis doctor temptums eum. Now, if that sounded like Greek to any of you, I'm sorry. It was supposed to be Latin. Is the first verse of today's gospel in Latin. Now, if you had been in a church in England 500 years ago, that is what you would have heard. In fact, that is all you would have heard. Both the readings and the the liturgy was in Latin. Whether you understood it or not, it was going to be in Latin. What changed was something that happened, and we remember today, sometimes called uh, Reformation Sunday. Now, the seeds of the Reformation had been developing all over Europe for more than 100 years, but the spark that lit the fuse was struck in Wittenberg, Germany, almost exactly 500 years ago today. On October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther, a professor of theology at the university, nailed a list of 95 issues he'd like to debate with the community to the door of the cathedral. These are generally called the 95 Theses. These 95 theses covered a lot of issues that Luther had with the church. And one of those issues was the the church's use of Holy Scripture. He calls the Holy Scripture the treasure of the church. He says that this treasure is not sufficiently known among the followers of Christ. And here he's talking about it uh, being in Latin that nobody understood. And he said also that the word of God is not preached as often as it ought to be. By 1521, Luther was translating the New Testament into German. He felt this was crucial, even though he had many other distractions. He was in trouble with the Pope. He was excommunicated. He was writing several other um, documents. He was preaching all over the place. And on top of all that, he got married and had six kids. Luther was a busy man. But translating the Bible into a language that the people could understand was a very high priority for him. Luther and his fellow reformers had fallen in love with the Bible, and they wanted all people to share in the knowledge of God and know his love for us that comes through the Bible. Now, in England, the Reformation was a little different than on the continent. In England, as on the continent, reading the Bible in any language other than Latin was illegal. You could be prosecuted for just possessing a Bible in English. Translating the Bible into English was prohibited. Nearly 20 years after Luther's challenge, uh, in 1536, William Tyndall was burned at the stake for several reasons, but the main one was he had translated the uh, Bible into English. 
Now, the irony of this is that the next year, 1537, Henry VIII ordered an English Bible placed in every parish in the kingdom. Now, most of us think of Henry VIII as a <clears throat> bloated, pig-eyed monarch pictured late in his life. And remember, he had six wives, and he beheaded some of them. But in his youth, he was considered quite good-looking. He was a great athlete, a scholar, an author, and a composer. Henry had been called the most accomplished and charismatic king to have sat on the throne of England. Now, the story of Henry VIII and the Reformation of England is a whole lot more complicated than just his lust for Anne Boleyn. And if you're interested, I suggest you um, find a good history on the subject. We need to get back to the Bible. But why did Henry order Bibles to be placed in every parish of the kingdom? The reason is that many English clergy, including Henry's chief ecclesiastical advisor, Thomas Cranmer, Archbishop of Canterbury, and author of our Book of Common Prayer, or at least the original edition, Cranmer and the others had been infected by the same bug that had infected Luther and all the other European reformers. They had fallen in love with the Bible, the good news. They believed that this, the good news contained in Holy Scriptures was too important not to be available to everyone in their own language. So Cranmer and the other English reformers convinced Henry to have an English Bible printed and distributed. Once the English Bible had been placed in every parish, it is said that shopkeepers, apprentices, and anyone who could would take time off from work and sit in the pews, listening to the Bible read aloud in English. The people of England, too, were falling in love with the Holy Scripture. Now, today we tend to take the Bible in English for granted. Bibles are available to everyone in a myriad of different translations. And the Gideons have done their very best to see that there's a Bible in every hotel room in the world. I found a Gideon Bible in a hotel in Shanghai, China. And I found this particularly interesting because this was, hotel was once the favorite uh, place for Mao Zedong to stay when he stayed in, in Shanghai. And Mao was a very activist atheist. It is easy to take something so easily available and commonplace as the Bible for granted, but it's a terrible thing to do so. Men and women were beheaded or went burned in the stake with a song on their lips because of their love of the Bible. Now I must confess, sometimes I find it difficult to read the Bible chapter by chapter. It is too easy for me to get lost in the list of begots and kings of Israel and the like, <clears throat> and it's much easier for me to read the scripture in bite-sized chunks. I found that if I follow the scripture daily lectionary found in the back of your prayer book, I can get through most of the scriptures in two years. The lectionary lists readings from the Psalms, the Old Testament, the New Testament, and Gospels. Now, there are two lectionaries, one daily lectionary that covers most of the Bible in a two-year cycle, and a Sunday lectionary that gives us a three-year cycle, and that's the lectionary that we read each Sunday. A resource that I find handy for, uh, for finding the daily lectionary, because it's not always easy in the prayer book, is in the Forward Day-by-Day Day book. We've got a new issue out just now. It gives all the readings for a day, every day, and a brief commentary on them. And I found this very useful to support my reading of scripture. Now, the lectionary is not the only way to read scripture. There are a lot of ways that work. But the lectionary is a key part of our heritage from the Reformation. If you look on page 866 of the prayer book, you'll find Thomas Cranmer's introduction to the first 
Book of Common Prayer in 1549. Now please, don't read it just now. Wait until the sermon gets really dull. About half of this preface is given over to the importance of reading scripture and setting up a lectionary to help people read the Bible and the whole Bible on a regular basis so that we too can experience Holy Scripture. Now with that in mind, let's turn to the part of the scripture lectionary appointed for this day. Our reading comes from Matthew 22, and it tells of an exchange between Jesus and the Pharisees and other leaders of the temple. The Pharisees test Jesus by asking which commandment is the greatest. This passage is a part of a, a series of readings that really began back in Matthew 21, with Jesus entering Jerusalem riding on a donkey. He is greeted by crowds throwing their cloaks on the road and cutting branches from the trees to spread in front of them. The crowd is shouting, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It is the first Palm Sunday. Jesus is causing quite a stir. And the leaders of the temple must be asking themselves, who is this Jesus and what are we going to do about him? Jesus then goes to the temple. He drives out all who are selling and buying in the temple and he overturns the tables of the money changers. Now this is serious business. The money changers and dove sellers were paying the temple for the privilege. So this hits the temple leaders in the, in the place where it really hurts, their pocketbook. Then the blind and the lame come to see Jesus in the temple and he cures them. And this too is serious business. Because healing the blind and the lame are signs the prophet says that show that the Messiah is here. Understandably, the folks who run the temple, the Sadducees as well as the Pharisees and the scribes, are more than just a tad peeved. They are challenged and maybe just a little bit frightened. So again they ask, who is this Jesus and what are we going to do about him? Now the temple leaders must be thinking that this Jesus um, cannot have any education. He's a roof. He comes from that hick town Nazareth, way up in Galilee, on the far side of the tracks, otherwise known as Samaria. He, they barely know how to read and write up there. He can't have any real education because he didn't study here at the temple. This is where we have all the real knowledge of the law and the prophets. So we'll show him up for the ignoramus that he must be uh, so that people will lose faith in him. So they challenge Jesus and ask him, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? And Jesus responds by asking, where did John get his authority? And the leaders of the temple are frustrated because whether they answer from man or from God, they get in trouble with the people. Then Jesus tells three parables, each of which indicts the temple leaders, since in each of them, the temple leaders can be seen as the bad guys. The leaders of the temple realize that the parables are aimed at them. So again, they ask, who is this Jesus and what are we going to do about him? We go on, the Pharisees try to chat Jesus, asking him about taxes. And Jesus responds, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. And so Jesus confuses and foils them. Next, it's the Sadducees' turn. Now, the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. So the Sadducees try to trap Jesus by asking a trick question about the resurrection. Jesus answered that the kingdom of heaven is not like the world we live in today, but beyond time and space, different from anything that they or we can imagine. 
So the Sadducees are silenced. <clears throat> then in our reading today, the lawyers test Jesus again. Which commandment is the greatest? Now the rabbis find 613 laws or commandments in the Torah, the Old Testament. Many of them saying are, thou shalt not do this or that. Uh, and you must do this, often giving very explicit details about how to live life, how to harvest your grain, how to keep the Sabbath, how to decorate your door, doorpost or your forehead. And the lawyer is asking which of these 613 laws is the greatest, because they've been wrestling this question for years and have found a way to show no matter which you pick, you're going to be wrong because they can find another. They're good arguers. Jesus answers that the greatest commandment is love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. All the other commandments and laws are summarized by these and depend on these two, love God and love your neighbor. Jesus says nothing about thou shalt not. He says, you shall. Now in today's love world, we are told often that love is a warm, fuzzy feeling. Uh, and if we don't have that warm, fuzzy feeling, it's not really love. The love Jesus is talking about isn't about feelings. For Jesus, love is an active verb. It means doing. Now what does this look like? Well, it looks different for each one of us. Feeding the hungry, clothing those who need clothes, knocking out the wall of a building damaged by flooding, forgiving someone who has injured us, sticking with someone in hard times, perhaps just being there for someone who needs our presence. Each of us is called to identify and use the talents given us and use them to make the world a better place for its inhabitants. And so we come back to the question that challenged the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. Each one of us has to ask ourselves the same questions. Who is this Jesus? And what am I going to do about it?